If you have uh, your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to our New Testament preaching text. That's the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible found in the rack in front of you, our text is on page 809. 809, Matthew is the first book in uh, the New Testament, just a couple chapters uh, in. We are continuing our sermon series uh, in these first 11 verses of chapter 4 uh, this morning. After a, a week off uh, last week, we return to this sort of introductory section in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus hasn't done much yet in this book that's all about him. Uh, lots of things have happened. We have followed him in his birth and his travels and his return uh, in his baptism where we first heard uh, his own words in that text at the end of chapter 3. Before we get into the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, there's one other thing that needs to happen to sort of set the stage for us. And that is his temptation, his testing. The temptation of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus, they sort of form this double springboard into the Gospels and into his life and ministry, almost like a, a cannon shooting out this gospel and this message. But before we get there, we need to know who he is. Really, nothing tells us better who Jesus is than these two events at the beginning of his ministry, his baptism and then his temptation. This is a familiar passage to many of you. I invite you to follow along with me again with fresh eyes as we hear what God has to say to his people this morning. Hear now the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this morning, as we have come to worship you, as we have come out of the the busyness and distractions of our lives and pray to settle our hearts in your presence. You remind us with a text like this, O oh God, 
that though our bodies are here, our souls are at war. And that many of us today are facing temptation. And many of us today are facing trials. And many of us have showed up this morning after having given in. And after having lost the battle once again. And we are reminded, we are crushed once anew with our own frailty. Lord God, I pray in this passage that you would crush us no more. That we would repent of some foolish idea that if we just know enough scripture, we can keep the devil away from us. But we would see this morning Christ, our victor, Christ, our champion, Christ, our king. And in him today, our souls would rest and we would rejoice in his and our victory. Lord, speak to us the gospel in these few minutes, for we so desperately need it. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most famous stories in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. Now, you all know it well. You don't have to be raised in the church to have heard the story of the young shepherd boy going out to face the huge Goliath giant and slay him uh, with his sling and a, and a stone. The Bible tells the story and it sets the stage with these two armies facing off against one another, Israel on one side and Philistines on the other side. There actually says that they're aligned one army on one mountain and the other army on the other mountain and there's this valley in between and every day Goliath would come out into that valley and he would challenge the Israelites, send out a champion, send out a warrior, send out someone to fight me. If you, if he beats me, we will be your servants. But if I beat him, you will become my servants. For 40 days, he did this. No one came out of Israel. For 40 days, the Israelites, the Bible tells us, were dismayed and afraid And then after 40 days, something happened. Out came their hero. But it wasn't a strong giant like Goliath, was it? It wasn't a king armed to the teeth for battle. It was a boy, a shepherd boy, with no real weapons to speak of and no armor to speak of. And we know the end of the story, but put yourself in the sandals of those Warriors watching their hero go to battle and it's nothing but an unarmed boy against that giant. What do you think they were thinking? What would you have been thinking? This is your hero? (laughs) This is your champion? This is your representative against the strength and the power and the might of the world? This is what we're trotting out? To defend us? That is what we should think when we begin to read Matthew chapter 4. Here goes our hero. Here goes our champion. Here goes our victor. But look what he's up against. (laughs) All our hopes And dreams and future rest in this battle. Rest on the shoulders 
of this champion. And what does the Bible tell us about him? Well, he's tired and hungry. <laughs> he's weak. He's beaten down. He's exhausted from 40 days of fasting. And here goes our king. What I want you to see in the text this morning is that this is not an instruction manual on how you battle sin. It's not some random encounter between a person and his enemy. It is a test, and it is a victory in which we are tested and we emerge victorious because our king is tested and our king emerges victorious. If you don't remember anything else from this morning, remember this, Jesus emerges from this test as the victorious son of God for all people. Jesus emerges from his test as the victorious son of God for all people. I want you to see this morning our test, really our battle as it plays out. There's kind of three stages or three phases in this battle. It begins with sort of the the combatants, the enemies taking the field. It continues as the battle is waged. That's kind of the middle section, verses 3 to 10. And it ends in the final verse as the victor emerges. So I I want you to see these three sort of scenes or phases as this battle plays out before us as we watch our hero march forth and all of our hope is tied up in how he does in this test the first phase the first stage is verses one and two the field is set that's our heading for verses one and two the field is set for this epic battle if you've studied anything of military history of wars and battles, you know a simple truth that the one who chooses the battlefield has a huge advantage, right? The one who chooses the terrain because it suits their strengths has the advantage. So what's this terrain? What's the battlefield? Well, it's the wilderness. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. That word means enough in our own understanding of it. It wouldn't be a a hospitable place where we would want to spend much time and live, but there's even kind of more to the the wilderness as far as the the themes of the Bible go. For one, the wilderness is a place of spiritual darkness. The wilderness is a place of demons. The wilderness is, we might say, the home field of the devil. And he has the, the home court advantage. The wilderness is also a place of testing. It's a place where uh, young men would often go to experience some sort of trial or some sort of test. And so Jesus is led to the wilderness, to a spiritually dark and evil place for a period of testing. So we are not surprised to find at the end of verse 1 that he is led to be tempted by the devil. His opponent in this spiritual battle is given three names. The devil, number one. The tempter, number two, and Satan himself. Name is used later in the text. I had a seminary professor that used to say that when the devil tempts you and me, he sends his interns to do that job. Like a boss would send an intern to get a cup of coffee, right? But when he tempts Jesus, he comes himself. This is not the job for an intern. This is his own job. He comes in full force 
to battle with Jesus. Do you hear the echoes of another battle? Do you hear the echoes of the Battle of Eden? Maybe we call it the Garden of Eden. (laughs) Genesis 3 is the battle in Eden as the devil comes to tempt man. Of course, Adam and Eve had all the advantages. They were in the wilderness. They were in the overflowing garden, right? They're not hungry. They're full. They have everything they could ever want. Why does Jesus go out into the wilderness in the first place? Why would he even do this? Look at verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. That's the Spirit of God. right? The one that we just read descended upon Jesus like a dove. Is now, first thing the Spirit does in the life and ministry of our Lord is to take him to the wilderness to face his and our great enemy, the devil himself. To be, as the verse says, tempted by the devil. Now this word is tricky. Because this word can be translated tempted or it can be translated tested. And we know from the rest of scripture that God does not tempt his people. God is not in the business of tempting us. That's the job of our enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what tempts us. God does not tempt his people. But the, the experience of testing and tempting from our perspective can be so similar that we can just use the same word to describe it, right? It's just from whose hand does it come? When that experience comes from the Lord, it's a test. When it comes from the devil, it's tempting. So God's plan is to test Jesus. He tests him by sending him into the desert. This is along the same path we read last week to fulfill all righteousness. That he is going out, he was baptized to fulfill the plan of God, and he is tempted to fulfill the plan of God. See, the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam, or it calls him the second Adam. The first Adam faced a temptation, and he failed. So now comes the second Adam, or the last Adam, to go face The same temptation, we're going to see, actually, it's a whole lot worse. It's a whole lot harder of a temptation than Adam ever faced. Jesus is going into the wilderness to attempt where Adam failed. And what's our confidence in this verse? Well, verse 2 does not give us much confidence in our champion. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Y'all, I skip a meal and I get hungry, right? I mean, if you think of a a physical place to be, to face temptation in your life, being this hungry is not a good place to be, right? And just to be clear, Jesus doesn't have some sort of magical ability not to experience hunger. No, he's all man, just like us. You can imagine exactly how you would feel. 40 days, 40 nights without eating in the wilderness. I mean, that's sort of on the brink of all the body can handle, And then face the greatest spiritual battle of your life. (laughs) But Jesus knows the type of battle that is to come. He might not be prepared for a physical battle. But he is prepared in his dependence upon his father for the spiritual battle that is to come. So the lines have been drawn. The battlefield is set. 
The combatants have arranged themselves, a, a weak and hungry Jesus, up against Satan, the devil, the tempter, on his home turf. <laughs> now let's see what happens. The battle is waged, verses 3 to 10. The devil begins to launch his attacks. And he launches three attacks. They're all in the form of a temptation, and each one is stronger than the last. Right? They get harder and harder. The first temptation is to turn the stones into bread. Now, this is not a temptation for you or me. When I'm hungry, I wish I could turn a rock into a hamburger, but I can't, right? Jesus can. Now, why is this this a temptation? Well, he's hungry, and so he wants some food. And elsewhere in the Bible, we read that other people are hungry, and what does Jesus do? He feeds them. In fact, he performs miracles, so there's enough bread to feed hungry people. So it's not wrong for our Lord to feed hungry people by his miracles. So what's wrong or what is so tempting to him? Well, number one, number one is just if Satan asks you to do something, it's probably wrong, right? Seems like a good principle, right? If your enemy tells you to do something, don't do it. But even more, what Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to use his own power for his own selfish ends, right? To use his divine strength and power, which he has, of course, because he's 100% God, for his own benefit. The question here, as we watch this interaction unfold, is who is Jesus representing in this text? Or in this encounter. If it's just him and the devil, does it really matter if he eats or not? The thing is, he's also representing us. He's not just representing himself, he is representing us. And he is showing in this denial to eat in this temptation that he has come into the world for us, not for himself. He hasn't come to alleviate his own suffering. He's actually come to take on our suffering. If Jesus were to simply prevent his own hunger by the exercise of his divine power, we would be without hope. Because it would mean he has just come for himself. And that's what Satan is tempting him to do. His response is telling Verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's sustained by the spiritual bread of heaven. He is saying the spiritual is more important than the physical. And the way he tells us this, the way he tells Satan this, is by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, all three of these quotes He responds to all three temptations by quoting from Deuteronomy. They're all from the same part of the the book. Twice from chapter 6, once from chapter 8. Deuteronomy is that portion of scripture where God's people, led by Moses, are at the end of their 40 years in the wilderness. And at the end of those 40 years, they're about to cross into the promised land. Before they do, Moses has a final word for them. I mean, 
Some scholars think Deuteronomy is a sermon. It's just Moses' final sermon to the people of God before they cross into the promised land. So Jesus is not quoting just any old portion of scripture. He is quoting particularly from the, the scripture that is at the end of 40 days of testing in the wilderness. Here is particularly where Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You heard that, right? He's led by God 40 years versus 40 days in the wilderness. And just as Israel was hungry, so is Jesus hungry. God is bringing his son on that same path of testing through which Israel walked in the Old Testament. It's not only the echoes of the battle in Eden, it's also the echoes of the battle in the wilderness. One author has written that Jesus is all of Israel reduced to one man. So we watch. As Jesus refuses the food offered by the devil. Eve didn't refuse it. Adam didn't refuse it. Jesus refuses the food offered by Satan. By the word of the Lord, he deflects the fiery darts of the enemy. But Satan's not done. He's got another attack. This one's better than the last Temptation number two. Go back with me to the book of Matthew chapter four. Temptation number two, verse five. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now, who in the world would be tempted to jump off of a really high building, right? That sounds ridiculous. You see how Satan is provoking Jesus with that little word, if, He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. This is probably the corner of the temple over the walls of Jerusalem, over the Kidron Valley. So scholars say he's potentially 300 feet in the air. If he jumps, it's 300 feet to the bottom. And this is taller than the tallest building in Asheville, right? That new building they've spent all that time working on downtown. That's not this tall. So this is a dizzying height. And he says to him, if, second time he said, if you are the son of God. Now, you'll remember that God just said in chapter 3, verse 17, this is my beloved son. So you know, I know, Jesus knows. But man, when somebody calls you out like that, <laughs> you kind of want to prove them wrong, right? You want to do something. You want to you show them you've been provoked. And so the temptation here is that Jesus would cast himself off of the temple Because God's word says that he'll be kept safe. At least that's what Satan says. As he goes on in his argument, the devil quotes from Psalm 91 that says, He will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up 
lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see the, the wiles of our enemy? You see why he's called the deceiver? Because he uses, he twists God's word. He twists God's word to say the very thing it's not intended to say. This is how he works. This is what he said to Eve in the garden. You know, you're not really going to die if you eat that fruit. It's what he said through the mouths of those who mocked Jesus on the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He's perverting God's word that promises protection as if it assures us that we can take any risk in disobedience of his word. And he will still keep us physically safe. Jesus responds. He again quotes from the book, the book of Deuteronomy. This time he quotes from chapter 6. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in the last quote, it's God testing Israel. In this quote, it's Israel testing God. You'll remember when that happened is when Israel's in the desert. They're thirsty. They've been fed manna from heaven, but they still need water. There's no water, and so they complain. To Moses, they say, is the Lord among us or not? And God rebukes them as testing him. See, God's allowed to put us to the test, right? We're not really supposed to put God to the test. (laughs) The way that we test God in our sin is that we doubt his promises so much that we act on that doubt of God's promise. God has promised us things. We are flesh and blood. It is hard for us sometimes to believe those promises. So sometimes we have to make decisions based on whether we believe the promise or not. To test God is to essentially to believe the doubt and not to believe the promise. Jesus believes the goodness and the promises and the plan of his God. He has no need to jump off of the temple to prove it because God's word says not to put the Lord your God to the test. But the devil has one last attack, one last arrow he has reserved and this is the, this is the worst of them all. Here is the temptation, number three, is to bow down to the devil. Now again, on the surface of it, that seems pretty obvious No, no, right? Why would Jesus be tempted to bow down to the devil? But look what he does. He takes him to a high mountain to see all the kingdoms. Now, there's not really a mountain so high that you could see all the kingdoms of the world. This is probably some sort of vision. And he says to Jesus, you can have all of this. You can receive all the kingdoms of the world. You just have to do one little thing. You have to bow down to me. If You bow down to me. Now, how is this at all tempting to Jesus? Well, think about what he's come to do. He has come as king to rule and reign over all of the kingdoms of the world, right? He has come to be proclaimed as the coronated king over all of his creation. But he knows the way to get there is through the cross. Satan essentially comes to him and says, what if I told you you could have everything you ever wanted and you don't have to go to the cross? What if you could have everything God promised to you, but you don't have to suffer? You can get it all. 
You just, just have to bow down to me real quick. No agony, no mockery, no betrayal, no hanging on the cross, no death, no burial, none of it. You can still get everything that you want. You see, the devil is offering a shortcut. Just skip the grave, skip the cross, skip the sorrow. And you see, once again, what hangs in the balance here? It's us. Jesus does not suffer for himself. He suffers for us. So imagine that he can receive the kingdoms of the world either through God's plan or through Satan's plan. The only difference is immense and painful sorrowing and suffering. He's going to get it one way or the other. The only reason he would suffer is to bring us with him. The only reason he would suffer and die is to take us with him. The only reason he rejects this shortcut is because of his love for you and me, that he would endure every sorrow, every humiliation, every pain, even death, to bring us with him. And that's exactly why he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he tells the devil, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone you shall serve. It's not only the right answer, which it is, but it goes back again to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And there we read these words. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord, here's the quote, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. What is Jesus telling us by quoting this verse? He's saying, I am taking you to the promised land with me. (laughs) And it is through the cross and it is through the grave. But my people are coming with me. And there is no shortcut. Jesus will bring his people to God's place. Three attacks. Three failures. As the dust settles, Jesus holds the ground. That final verse, our third point in 60 seconds, the victor emerges. Here is Jesus, spotless, sinless, perfect, standing as the son of God who did not budge an inch to a temptation that would have slayed every single one of us. And the devil flees. Because Jesus told him to. He said, be gone, Satan, and the devil fled. And I love the final verse, angels came and were ministering to him. Remember where this comes from? It comes at chapter 6 when God, verse 6, sorry, when Satan mocked him. And said, yeah, jump off the temple. The angels will take care of you. Look what happens in verse 11. The angels do take care of him. It is the fulfillment of Psalm 91 to Jesus, our victor, emerges from the battlefield. 
As we close the page on this temptation, before we're done, I want to give you a couple takeaways, a couple points, a couple hooks to hang our faith on. Number one is the obvious one that Jesus passes the test that everyone else fails. Jesus passes the test that everyone else fails. I don't think you came in here thinking you can pass that test, but if you did, I hope you leave thinking, man, I would have failed that test miserably. Because Eve failed it. Adam failed it. Moses failed it. The Israelites failed it in the wilderness. Jesus alone passes the test. We read in the book of Hebrews, he is one who in every, every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what does that mean? It means he gives his righteousness to us. He's not teaching you how to pass this test. Y'all, you're not very good students. You would fail time and time again. He's not teaching you to pass the test. He's passing it for you. And he's taking you with him. And he's giving you his righteousness. That you are now counted in the eyes of God as those who have passed every test. And who are sinless and spotless before his throne of grace. The application from Matthew chapter 4 is not do this and live. It's believe this and live. It is believe this victor. Believe this conqueror. Believe this perfect and righteous savior who gifts us the victory by his grace alone. Jesus passes the test. Another takeaway for us today is that Jesus helps us when we are tempted. Jesus helps us when we are tempted. Again, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He helps us. The Bible, Jesus tells us how to pray when we are tempted. We pray like this. Lead us not into temptation. Have you thought about that before? We are praying that he would not lead us. And he's the very one who was led into temptation. Because he knows as well as I do that we can't stand it. He's the only one who can be led into temptation and emerge the victor. Because he has been led, we pray that we would not be led into temptation. Brothers and sisters, here is what we do when we are tempted. We pray to the one who has been tempted in every way yet without sin. We pray to the one who helps us. We pray to the one who with one word can say, be gone, Satan, and he obeys. There are no tips or calendars or schedules or accountability partners that can keep you from sinning. They will keep you from temptation. There is only one. And that is the Lord who himself was led into temptation to whom we can go that we would not ourselves be led but would be delivered from evil. Pray. Pray to the one who can help you when you are tempted. Finally, our third and final takeaway is that Jesus defeats the devil. Don't miss that. Jesus wins, right? There's a winner and there's a loser in this encounter. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but when Luke tells of the temptation of Jesus, Luke ends 
the temptation with this verse. The devil departed until an opportune time. He's not done. He'll come back over and over again in Jesus' life. He will come back and attack his followers in the book of Acts and the New Testament. He will come back and continue to threaten us. But we take hope that with one little word, Jesus will fell him. He will defeat the devil. The final place we read of the devil is in the book of Revelation. He's in Genesis and he's in Revelation. But you know where he's not? He's not in the first two chapters of Genesis. And he's not in the last two chapters of Revelation. His days are numbered. Here's the last time we see the devil in the Bible. Revelation 20 verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. That's it. God's still there. God's people are still there. But Jesus defeats the devil. He passes every test. He helps us when we are tempted. And he himself defeats the devil. You remember what happened in the valley of Allah after David killed Goliath? He slew him. And the, the camera sort of pans back to all of the anxious Israelites waiting on the hill. The Bible says they rose with a shout and they pursued the Philistines. Y'all, that's what's for us as the people of God. (laughs) To rise with a joyous shout and victory and charge forth under the victory of our king. His test is our test. And his victory is our victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are helpless and frail and given to temptation. Lord, break us of our pride and our self-sufficiency. To think we could look at this text and go home and say, I can do that. Forgive us of our hubris. That you fought your and our enemy merely to give us three steps to defeat him. Lord, humble us this morning. Humble us as sinners who are so, so tempted. Who are so given into temptation. Who go to the same temptation over and over and over again. Lord, show us the victory of Christ. Show us the victory of our king and our champion. Show us that in him is our victory. In him we rest. In him we rejoice. In him we face our enemy unafraid. Lord, give us the faith to trust and believe on Christ our head and Christ our king. We rest in his righteousness. We rely on him for our help. And Lord, we look with great anticipation for that final word, be gone, Satan, to live in your perfect kingdom forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.